We've been looking through the book of Daniel, and in just a moment, Andy's going to come up and um, uh, speak from Daniel chapter 3. So we're going to read that together now. Daniel chapter 3, and we're reading the first 15 verses. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other official, provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's worth start by telling you about a guy who was uh, standing at the gates of heaven, actually, um, as you do. And he was, uh, he was asked at the door for a kind of, you know, character reference of some sort. Um, and they said, we'd really like to know, at what point in your life did you show some courage uh, in your life? So he says, well, there was one time... Um, the guy offers, when I was out in the wilds and I came across this gang of bikers, 
You know, they were wild, they were, they were, you know, middle of nowhere, and they were threatening this young woman. So I politely directed them to leave her alone, but no, 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 they wouldn't listen. So uh, I approached the biggest guy, um, the, the most tattooed guy, um, and I smacked him over the head, I kicked his bike over, um, I pulled his nose ring out of his nose and threw it onto the floor and onto the ground. And I said, look, pal, leave her alone or you'll have to answer to me. Anyway, they were really impressed with it. They said, that, that was phenomenal. W when did this happen? And he said, uh, just a few minutes ago. So today we're looking at courage. We're looking at these verses in Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, unpacking what they teach us about different people and different hearts. So we're going to look at the king's heart, the crowd's heart, and uh, the courageous three um, as well. And uh, the, the crowd really are the spineless ones uh, in this. But first of all, a little bit of background from Daniel chapter 2. Um, because King Nebuchadnezzar has taken over, he's the king of Babylon, he's taken the Jews into exile, he's trampled on Jerusalem, um, and he has this dream. And it's a dream that only, the, only God can answer, only God can interpret what it means. And uh, he does that through Daniel um, into this. And so the king sees this large statue. Um, it has a gold head, it has a silver uh, arms and chest, it has a bronze belly and thighs, legs of iron, feet of a mixture of iron and clay, and then there's this crushing rock uh, in there as well. And the interpretation of this is that King Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head, that God has allowed him to have this, this, uh, this rule and reign. He's allowed this great empire, which is the Babylonian empire, which uh, existed for a long time. Um, but after that will come another kingdom. It's slightly inferior, it's silver, but it will still topple the Babylonians. Historically, we see that now as the Medo-Persian kingdom with Darius the Mede uh, in charge. Then there's a third kingdom, which is of bronze, uh, historically the Greek empire with Alexander the Great and, and all that he did. Then the iron, which becomes iron and clay, the Roman empire, um, again, that we now see, um, with iron representing that incredible strength, military might, um, as it expands and as it expanded, but amalgamated lots of different cultures and eventually becomes a mixture um, and uh, eventually becomes disunited and eventually destroyed, um, even though it continues, it seems, at some form to the very end of the age. And in the dream, there's this rock that's not human, human of human hand that strikes the statue, crushes it to pieces, in fact, to, to chaff, it says, um, and then becomes a great mountain um, um, which fills the whole earth, which is a picture of God's kingdom coming that will never be destroyed. This is a phenomenal dream um, that happens. So that's the different things I kind of flick through there. A phenomenal dream that this, this uh, king has. And it literally covers hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years of human history. Okay? It's, a, it's a dream that demonstrates to us that God is in control of history itself. That no matter how great we think we are, human enterprises will eventually decline. Um, it tells us that there will be difficult things at the end um, and it will be too difficult for things to hold together. It tells us that Jesus will return, that he will destroy his enemies and will fully and finally establish his kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever and ever. And that background helps us to understand chapter 3 because here the king comes and he builds this great image. But he builds this image of gold. And it's possible that up to 20 years have passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3 because they've been busy destroying Jerusalem. It took him a while to finally do it all. 
But he hasn't made an image that's made of all these different materials. He's decided, I'm going to have the whole lot made of gold because he's the gold guy. Okay, um, probably wood actually covered in gold, but nevertheless. And he's not content with a head of gold. He wants the gold that represents him to be every kingdom. His entire image is going to be of gold. There's a lot of self-centered pride here. There's a lot of arrogance here. He certainly doesn't like the idea of a future kingdom coming along and, and knocking him off at some point and taking over. And so we begin to see um, the king's heart. Where have I got to? Where's that come from? I'll oh, forget that. Come back to that. <laughs> and Daniel has made it very, very clear that no empire would outlast, including his. But the king's pride, the king's arrogance, and probably his fear, because he doesn't know the times and the whens and the wherefores of how it's all going to happen. He's thinking, I want to stop a rebellion. I want to stop people coming up for within this. And so he, um, to push that and quash that down, he sets himself up almost as a god, deserving of worship, and demands total commitment from people, otherwise they die in the fiery furnace. There's also worth mentioning a very strong foreshadowing of this towards the end of time. And there's a, as we look at chapters like Revelation 13, which talks about the so-called antichrist and the false prophet that deceived the people of the earth, they too set up this image very similar to Nebuchadnezzar, and they force everyone across the world to worship it, or to be killed if they refuse. Revelation 13 verses 14 and 15. And so Daniel gives us an insight into the heart of this anti-God's king, certainly at this stage of his life. Um, it gives us an insight into the crowds and uh, how they just fit in with things. And it also gives us insight into the faith of the three um, that actually help us to prepare our hearts for um, the increasingly anti-God, increasingly anti-Christian world system that we encounter in our world. And even the biblical dimensions of that golden idol in Daniel 3 are 60 cubits by 6 cubits and presumably 6 cubits. And you've got those 6s in there again, just, just paralleling those numbers of Revelation 13, 18 with the three 6s. Anyway, King Nebuchadnezzar sets himself up almost as a god or as a god, deserving of worship and demanding this total commitment. And we've seen this spirit all the way through history. We've seen people set themselves up like that. In Acts chapter 12, we read of Herod. Um, this is the, the grandson of the great Herod, um, Herod the Great, uh, earlier in the Bible. But on the appointed day, wearing his royal robes, he sat on his throne and he delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Okay, he's got so above himself, he now thinks of himself as a god. We see it in the Caesars, the great Caesars of Rome. But Caesar Augustus, Augustus wasn't his name, he was called Octavian. Okay, but Augustus was a title he was given, which literally means the revered one or the divine one as it started to appear on some of the coins. Likewise with Julius Caesar. And so they would demand that people would make Caesar as Lord um, in that situation. Der Führer in the 1920s was just an ordinary word. Can you imagine? It just meant the leader. Okay, it was an ordinary word. Everyone could use it. But by the 30s and 40s, it had become a title of one man and no one else could have that name. And Adolf Hitler, would, uh, nobody would dare challenge him on any of that stuff. And these are the situations where people would stand and say, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Okay, this is where you'd say, Hitler is not my Führer, he is not my leader, Jesus is my Führer, he is my leader, if you like. And it's the severity of that that is going on here in Daniel chapter 3. 
um, and will increasingly return to world politics in days to come. So no wonder in Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God, except by the Holy Spirit, because it's a harder thing to say than you think. So the king in verse two summons and he sends for all these government ministers, officials, administrators, magistrates, judges, all the rest of them. Um, every level of authority is represented and expected to be present. Okay, this is operated at a government level. Okay, with all of the economical force and the political force that comes with that. Again, foreshadowing things to come. His plan is to unify all people. But it's more than just political. He actually uses a religious service in it. Okay, he uses worship in it, um, as we read in Daniel 3. And he brings fear into it. If you don't worship this image, then you will die. You will go into the furnace, um, even if you're a conscientious objector. And so we see more of that. And we see even more of the king's heart in verses 13 and 15. Because we hear when he hears about these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, refusing to worship him, he is furious. He is rageful. Um, he absolutely lets the lid off his anger in this one. And uh, as I was writing this point, and trying to, I thought, this is a good point. Let's look at anger. I spilled coffee all over my, my notes. <laughs> right? I, had a point, I had a choice at that point. You know, do I succumb to this anger <laughs> that I'm about to take out on this cup for its lack of thoughtfulness, uh, like Basil Fawlty or something like that, or do I move on? You know? You'll have to ask the cup what happened next. If he's, I don't think he's speaking today, to be honest. But, uh, you know, the prayer came to my mind, probably wrongly. You know, Lord, take this cup from me, but not, not my will, but yours. Okay, um, anyway, when anger arises in our lives, it's a bit like the oil light coming on, in our, in our, on our dashboard in our car. You know, the red light goes on, warning, time to look under the bonnet. Anger's like that. It's, it's nothing wrong with it. It's just that it's a warning sign that often it's time to look under the bonnet. You know, what is it that's going on in our hearts that, that, that provokes that anger? You know, often we think it's someone out there that's provoked it, but actually it's something that's in here usually. Um, it's usually a blocked goal uh, in our life. It's something if we start to, you know, investigate, actually we see a, an element of self-centeredness in there as well. Um, and so it's something that is worth inspecting and worth dealing with uh, in our hearts and in our lives. So we see the heart of the king here. But we also see the heart of the crowd in verses four to seven. These are the spineless ones of our series. Um, these are the ones with no backbone of conviction. These are the ones that have got less backbone than a jellyfish. You know, these are the go with the flow people. And for them, to be quite honest, it's a no-brainer. Okay, if you really think about it, you know, worship a statue or die in a furnace. Hmm, let's have a think about this one. Let's just weigh up the pros and cons here. Not a lot of pros. Yeah, I only get the cons. So the conclusion is, I'll go with the flow. So at the sound of the music, they would either fall down before the image or they die. That's the choice. And uh, living is basically what it's all about, isn't it? That's uh, the philosophy probably of most of us, if we're honest. That's the philosophy of our world. You know, there is only this life, therefore life is what matters. You know, we're only concerned with survival. Um, and we'll do anything to escape death and danger to the point of even selling ourselves and our souls into slavery and uh, following the empty myths that the world promises. Um, even the words of Satan in Job chapter 2 verse 4, you're thinking, does he speak in there? He says this, he says, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. 
A man will give all he has for his own life. You know, that is the way the world works. That's the, the world we've been brought into. Um, and so we get insight into the people, even of today, who will blindly follow a world system, building lives on something that is actually false and futile. And yet you might be thinking, really? Is that really that out of kilter? But the Christian way is actually completely the opposite. Um, John chapter 12 and verse 24, Jesus put it like this. He says, the person who loves his life will lose it. While the person who hates his life in this world will keep it and have eternal life. That's highly challenging and it is very opposite um, in a fundamental way. And we'll come back to that. It's also interesting to see the power of music um, in here and false worship in this passage. Of these 15 verses that Marcus read to us, four of them, okay, that's over 25% of them, are all about the detail of musical instruments, musical genres, and worship rituals. Um, I have to say I was a little bit disappointed to find pipes in there. Bagpipes is what they're referring to, if you want the truth on that one. Um, but never mind. Music is very, very powerful. Worship is powerful. And it can be used for God, but it can also be used against God. You know, there's music in our world that calms you down. There's music that will actually put you into an ethereal state. Um, and even, I don't mean specifically Christian music. Okay, there's music to pump you up. There's music to simply take away the silence. Um, probably everybody's got a favourite style of music, a favourite artist. Uh, music apparently is even used in therapies. It's used with people with various mental health issues and other, other areas to try and help people. It's used and is key in New Age practices across our world. It's, uh, it's used a lot in unbiblical meditation practices. So we see the power of music. And as soon as they heard the music in verse 7, they all fell down and they worshipped. Um, and it becomes very quickly a controlling signal. You know, like Pavlov's dogs, you know, ring the bell and the dog starts to salivate because he thinks it's lunchtime. Um, music is used to promote nationalism. And if you're following the Six Nations, you'll know, you know the anthems and the power of that. It's used to motivate people for conquest. It's used to inspire people to act. Uh, back in 1704, uh, Scott Andrew Fletcher said, you write the laws and I'll write the music and I'll rule your country because he understood the power of music and all of that. It's a wonderful tool for God, but it is also a destructive weapon from the enemy. And Christian worship is not immune. Um, you know, generally we know the tunes better than we know the words. You know, in fact, some say that most of, a lot of people's theology comes from the songs we sing rather than from the scripture itself. And so that's a huge challenge for people, you know, that we're singing songs that are theologically correct in all of that. You know, when does an overly repetitious lyric of a Christian song overstep Jesus' warning of Matthew 6, 7 that just says we're just, you know, endlessly babbling on? You know, when, when does it become what the Hindus and the New Ages call a mantra? You know, which is designed very specifically to be mesmerizing, have a hypnotic effect that predisposes people to spiritual seduction, behavioral manipulation, and financial exploitation, all in the name of worship. You know, we always need to be discerning when it comes to true worship and false worship, especially in a day and age when it has become big business. You know, particularly in the States, but right across the world, it's a multi-million pound industry. So just because it makes us feel good doesn't always mean it's right, okay? We worship God in spirit, yes, but we also worship in truth. And so those ethereal feelings that music produces 
are not unique to Christians. Okay? It doesn't mean necessarily it's godly worship. There are huge non-Christian worldwide movements that use music to bring people into ecstatic states and all sorts of things. It is very powerful simply in and of itself. So no doubt the music industry, which we see in our world through advertising and the huge thing of music anyway, and false worship, no doubt will be part and a significant part of deceiving uh, people around the world and even the saints um, towards the end. So we've been under the bonnet of the king's heart and we've seen something of that. We've begun to see some of the go with the flow stuff of the crowd. But what insights can we gain from the courageous three, um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in verses 8 to 12? Well, these three, out of a great crowd, stand tall, quite literally. When everybody else bows down, they still stand. Okay? And when I was a student at Edinburgh, um, I was, uh, one Christmas, we put on a Christmas review, as you do as students. So we put on a fun act, you know, a few things, entertain the department, take the, the, the rip out of the department, out of folks in the class. And one of the things we did, a very simple thing, was we did a spoof of Old MacDonald Had a Farm, which many of you will know. So, but we changed the word slightly. So instead of it being Old MacDonald, it was Old Prof Wilco, who was our, our professor. So Old Prof Wilco had a farm, and each of the verses we picked on one of the, the kids, and you know, one of the kids, one of the one of the one of us, right? And when it was our shot, we stood forward and they took, told a funny verse, and then we stood back into the room. However, we had a last verse that only ten of us were in on. The other three didn't know about this, so they thought the thing had finished. And then we finished up, you know, all Prof Wilco had a farm, E-I-E-I-O, and on that farm we had three swats. And all ten of us stepped back, and these three were just standing like idiots <laughs> at the front of this. It was absolutely genius, and they completely deserved it, I'll tell you. But this is a very different situation, okay? This is a much more serious situation. Everybody falls down in worship, and these three courageous men voluntarily stay standing. They had faith in the true and living God. You know, in the word that God had spoken uh, to their people. And they would have known the, these verses of Isaiah 43, where Isaiah the prophet looks ahead and he says, Do not fear, you know, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And we saw that fulfilled as they come out of Egypt and enter the promised land through the river Jordan. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God powerful words that they will have known about and uh, faith means this I came across this quote I find it incredibly helpful faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us regardless of the circumstances around us and regardless of the consequences before us faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us regardless of the circumstances around us and regardless of the consequences before us. True faith is not impressed by the crowd. It isn't frightened by the threats. It always obeys God and then trusts him for the consequences. Okay, I'll do my bit. God, it's now up to you how we work through in all of that. And they didn't even bow down once. They, they didn't start and then think, we need to have a, you know, we have a meeting about this. This is not great. They've actually decided in advance. They know before they get into the situation. And my experience is that's true in our Christian lives. You know, if we want to take a stand on something, if we want to do the right thing, it's usually because we've made a decision before we get to the situation. You know, we've determined in our minds and in our hearts, 
That is how I will behave. That is what I will say. This is how I will act. Because otherwise we get into the situation and we are very easily swayed. You know, as James puts it, you know, we, we're unstable in all that we do. We're double-minded instead of being single-minded, having the mind of Christ, of taking every thought captive, as, it, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, and make it obedient to Jesus and do it, live the way he wants us to live. So here's some th- questions that we can ask ourselves. You know, wh- when have the feelings of fear or risk within you stopped you from obeying God? Um, for me, it might be sharing my faith. And I realise I've actually got to step out of that and come over that fear and, and actually share something, my story or, or some truth from that. You know, wh- when have circumstances around you stopped you obeying God? You know, it's more convenient to go with the flow um, or it's quicker to, to cut a corner, um, even at work or whatever, because of the circumstances around us. Or when have the consequences before you stopped you obeying God? You know, perhaps you don't want to come clean about something because you think, oh, what might happen? What awkward conversations might I have to have? Um, everyone else is doing it. You know, some indiscretion at work. Okay, things that stop us from obeying God. And these are the areas where true faith grows in our lives. These are the, these are the times when we grow that faith in us so that we are prepared for the fiery trial uh, of the future as we determine in our hearts to know God. Uh, Rick Miles was just telling me before the service that there was a time when, in Burundi I think it was, and um, there was a church meeting and a guy came in with a gun, or a group of people came in with guns, and they said to everyone, oh, okay, um, anybody who doesn't want to die for your faith, can you leave now? What? Big, so that's a big kind of, you've got to make a decision at that point. So a number of people leave. Um, once they've left, they put the guns down and said, now we know we can trust you. So that was interesting. So sometimes it works the other way. But Romans 4, Paul says this, we, are not us, we do not belong to ourselves. Romans 14, verse 7 and 8. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. And so our great motivation in life is God's grace. That God has given himself for us. That he's come and taken our place in a way that we, could, we couldn't do so that we could have eternal life. And our, our motive comes out of that, you know, is, is the gratitude for his grace. Um, and because of that, the principle we live by is we no longer live for ourselves. Okay, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live, um, we give up our rights, for example, to determine what's right and wrong. And we come to God's word and we say, no, what he says is right and wrong. And uh, we start a change with that. We give up our usual operating principle, which is put me first. And we start to live and start to do what pleases God and what loves our neighbour. You know, it also means that we have no part of our lives that is immune to um, this, this self-giving. Not every part of our lives. To give ourselves wholly to him, body and soul. And it means to trust God through thick and thin. Through the hard times, the bad times and the good times. In life and in death because we are no longer our own. And it's all because of the sheer grace of what God has done and shown us. As a Christian speaker once said, how can you come to grips with someone who gave himself utterly for you without giving yourself utterly to him?